Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. Alright, so I'm recording this introduction on April 5th, and it feels like a millennia has passed since I last visited a bar. That's not to say that I haven't been drinking. Um, I've just been doing it at my house, which is a totally different thing. And that's because you're not just eating and drinking when you go out. Uh, Part of what I miss most in this, like, shitstorm of a pandemic is the opportunity to just, like, sit at a bar, sit at a restaurant, and observe all the individualized intricacies of service. Because each establishment is its own little world with a unique culture, right? I mean... For a couple of hours, you're transported to another place, somewhere very far from your own kitchen or living room. It sounds like super fucking corny to say, but when you dine out, you get more than a meal, you get an experience. One of the best ways a business can create a memorable experience is through a distinct aesthetic, and that's where today's guest, Matt Tabor, comes in. Matt is the co-founder and art director of Letterset, a Houston-based design firm specializing in brand identity creation and implementation for the restaurant industry. Matt and his wife Leslie are the ones behind some of the best menus you've seen in Houston. From bars like Anvil to restaurants like Underbelly, Matt has helped shape the way Houstonians interact with food and beverage. As a wine director, I've always been really curious what makes a menu quote-unquote good on an infrastructural level. You know, it's one thing to just buy wine for a program, but in my conversation with Matt, I really wanted to discuss the role of architecture and art in general in menu creation. So Matt and I met up virtually, and our FaceTime conversation started the way most conversations go these days. We chatted about the quarantine doldrums and what we're doing to pass the time. So here's Matt talking about his new normal. Yeah, so I I, uh, dusted off the bike. (laughs) Yeah? Uh, So I'm back taking some uh, brief bike rides just through the neighborhood. We actually have a... um, a public park that's not too far from us off of the bayou so been going through some of those bayou trails mm-hmm. and trying to stay somewhat active there but then um like i mentioned briefly we're kind of gardening in the backyard so going out checking on that daily just kind of weeding things watering doing that kind of stuff but what plants do you have the most faith in and which ones are I, I feel like potatoes should be pretty good. <laughs> yeah? But I have no clue. I'm not a gardener. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> Is Leslie much of a gardener? Does she have a green thumb? No. <laughs> no? We're both flying blind. Uh, oh, man. Yeah, I had a couple uh, summers back, I started a same kind of thing, just like a small backyard garden. And I had a pretty decent amount of luck. So I'm hoping that that'll just kind of spill over. But um, yeah, I think... The, the last time it was uh, jalapenos that did surprisingly well. Okay. So we'll see if that carries over. Some jalapenos and potatoes. That's, that's all <laughs> that's, a man needs. That's all life. we're eating yeah. in the future apocalypse. Yeah. Just, just really spicy potatoes. That's... <laughs> yeah, exactly. You do what you got to do. You got to do. Yeah. That'll, that'll be good. That'll be fun. Um <laughs> Um, so, so you've been growing potatoes, you've <laughs> been growing jalapenos, going for bike rides, but, yep. but you also have been working. I saw one of your pieces, um, post pandemic was the French fry fight for uh, squabble, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a cool design. Yeah. And it turned out really well. It was actually, uh, over the course of designing their logo, um, 
we usually render like a spec sheet you're familiar with. We've, we've submitted the same to you, but with some logo options for them to choose from. And that was actually from um, one of the options that we presented for Squabble. Oh, really? That was from like one of the originals? It was, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. So we kind of retooled it. Um, he had called and reached out to me, so we had it match their branding a bit more, uh, tweaked some of the elements a bit, and sent it over to him so that he could release that and help totally. them, you know, do what they're doing right now, hopefully. Uh, before we get ahead of ourselves, how did you get into design in the first place? Um, yeah, so really, originally, it was just kind of accidental, <laughs> almost. Yeah. Um, I always drew and painted and was kind of a creative kid growing up, so looking for a way to kind of transform that into something that I could actually make a living off of, and mm-hmm. design seemed to be <laughs> the the quickest yeah. uh, connection to that means, so yeah, from there, it kind of just got randomly hired at a design and print studio in Louisiana where I was living at the time. Um, learned a bunch there. Uh, worked in a cubicle for three years. <laughs> Did not wow. like that. Um, so yeah, from there, just kind of went back to school. Did some fine art painting. Kicked around. Got a degree. Um, and then ended up back in design. So. So you went directly into design from kind of like high school or college? And uh, from Directly from high school, actually. Directly uh, from high school. Yeah. Went into design, worked in a very uncreative space, maybe like that cu- cubicle setup. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was interesting because the, the management and the staff there was great. So it wasn't necessarily yeah. anything to do with the people. Um, it was mm-hmm. more just that it felt kind of limiting to be in that cubicle space. And I think I thrive off of, especially post experiencing the relationships that we've developed with clients. I really mm-hmm. thrive off of developing those relationships and working more hand in hand with, um, you know, the people that we work with. So that's part of the reason. But. Yeah. It seems like you very much realized that like you, it seems like everything that you didn't like about, maybe that initial experience you do have now with letter set. Um, I should say that, you know, Matt and I have worked together um, when I ran Camerata Wine Bar, and we collaborated on a lot of different kind of projects together from the branding for a Basque-themed party to the champagne page of our wine list. We had collaborated on a lot of different aspects related to... uh, the kind of like vision for the wine list, which was really, really fun for me. Um, So you, you were living in Louisiana. um, And then you said you went back to school for fine art. And where did you go to school for that? Yeah, so I actually moved uh, to Houston to go back to school. Okay, Uh, Started out at the Art Institute. Um, Not the best experience. I I wouldn't recommend many people to go there. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, only lasted about a uh, year and a half, two years there, and then switched over to um, University of Houston. Mm. Um, so at Art Institute, I was actually studying uh, media arts and animation, so kind of still in that design production realm. But then, um, real quick, media posted. arts um, for someone that, yeah, yeah, for the layman like me, what does that translate to? So, um, media arts was kind of production rate. Um, 
production grade animation and visualization for industry of any kind. Mm -hmm. Um, So it definitely was a program that was intended to lean more towards animation production, Mm -hmm. um, which was great. I I learned a whole lot there as far as that's concerned. Um, But yeah, from there, leaving that that situation, decided to do something a bit more tactile um, and went for fine art painting at u of h where i actually completed uh, the degree program there so uh how useful that was i have no clue but (laughs) it was good for me as a person to learn some of the things that i learned there so for someone that hasn't studied that it's really learning how to contextualize what you're painting or learning the like finer points of technical proficiency when it comes to painting It, it was a little bit of both um it was definitely a technical understanding of what you're doing and how you're doing it, but it also uh, did a really good job of understanding the the history of where fine art comes from mm-hmm. and where it is now. It kind of the contextualization there and how to process things inside of that realm. So it's really sure as a fine art painting as far as like I learned how to paint things, but I also learned just a gross amount about the contextualization of how I was creating things, which I feel is super important in anything that you do is to understand the cultural connotation of what you're putting into the world and what you're creating. So So you graduate um, from U of H with this new degree. And at that point, you started working independently, you said, right? Just kind of doing freelance work? So, uh, actually, while I was in the degree program, I had actually already started working in Hmm. the industry. So, I was working at Polly's while I was still pursuing Hmm. a degree. Um, And it was actually that that kind of birthed, like, he needed a menu, and I had an answer to that because I had a background in design, and then I was learning how to do these more hands-on things. Um, So, from there, it kind of birthed this chalkboard uh that he initially started with it was just like so many different typefaces and all hand drawn and um kind of birthed a lot of what i did from there so i would say actually post-graduating i had actually already developed a pretty strong um Mm -hmm. roster of clients just from working at Polly's, uh going Mm -hmm. to school full-time and then doing freelancing as much as I could on, on this. It's funny because, um, you know, I feel as though chalkboard art or chalkboard menu design, you know, is ubiquitous now, but maybe in 2011, you know, 2012, that was still a relatively like new and different thing. Do, Do you still find chalkboard design for menus to be, you know, relevant to the conversation? Is it still something that, you know, you find to be a useful tool? I think it's still relevant for a lot of um, restaurants that are starting out. Um, it's it's definitely, to me now, it harkens to that specific time of kind of like 2010, 2011, 2012. I think the industry as a whole was kind of embracing that craft movement of rediscovering what those values meant and what small production means and how to impact the community and um which i think are all great things and it was awesome to be a part of that as it was kind of like being rebirthed inside of the industry 
Uh, but with that said, I feel like um, a lot of how people perceive that and a lot of how restaurants are acting inside of that trend has now kind of escalated and graduated uh, to a certain degree into something different. So to say that I, I think informationally as a way of informing uh, guests on ordering procedures or menu items, I think that uh, chalkboards can still do a great presentational job of that. Um, I think personally, I've started doing less of that as, as trends change and the industry changes. So with, with a movement maybe away from chalkboard, what have you found to be a kind of the evolution of that? Like what you might be maybe used to do with chalkboard, what are you doing now? Yeah, so um, I mean, we've kind of changed that a bit on a client by client basis, really. Uh, I think for Fiji's Barbecue, we did um, one of those uh, channel letter boards uh, which is just about as difficult to lay out. Uh, Leslie's actually yeah. the one who like went in and actually technically laid out each letter of their menu, which is a huge undertaking because it's, it's a massive menu. Um, so it, for them, that was the right answer. Uh, for other client, clients, I'll, I'll do more uh, permanent um, iterations mm -hmm. now of doing hand-painted boards that don't necessarily change as much. So I think that's a part of it mm. too and recognizing how those trends change is that um, just as a means of a restaurant employing someone to constantly come in and update a chalk menu isn't as feasible as yeah. more permanent options or things that they can change on their own. Uh, so it's kind of adapting to those trends and figuring out how we can serve them in a way that's still aesthetically very pleasing uh, but solves their problems of constantly updating a menu or presenting things in a way that people can still understand and visualize super easily. Um, but yeah, overall, that's that's kind of where we've landed on it. It's funny. I'm sure that you probably get that a lot. People, you know, saying, hey, I know that you just did this massive installation or you just did this massive work, mm -hmm. but we just changed this like one little thing. Yeah. It happens so often. Uh, yeah, I, I, I love the restaurant industry, um, but sometimes <laughs> there's just a, there's, there's a differentiation between like how I process information and how the, the majority of restaurant industry uh, upper management processes information. And it is a, it's kind of like fly by the seat of your pants, just kind of like, oh, I thought of, of this change that needs to happen, but I thought of it right now. Yeah. Um, so through that, we've just had to, had to learn how to roll with those punches. So if somebody calls, like we, we show up and we'll make that change mm -hmm. just because that's the way the industry works. So. Yeah. Um, so... So going back to that formative time for you, you're working as a barista at Polly's. You're helping out with the chalkboard. Where, where did things go from there? I would say from Polly's, it actually uh, segued into Greenway um, and David as a a big supporter of what we were doing at the time. Um, we so should we, say David Buer, who um, is one of the co-founders of Greenway Coffee, uh, Greenway Roasting Company. Um, David is, for me at least, 
my kind of like entry point into the world, not just of coffee here in Houston, but of, you know, hospitality here in Houston. Um, A super creative, collaborative individual. Um, No doubt, no doubt. And that was in, in huge part, like his willingness to collaborate and kind of work through a bunch of those more creative projects uh, that really spurred us into the majority of the clients that we have. Um, He's extremely well connected, obviously, inside of the restaurant industry. So from there, I think he actually ended up introducing us to kind of Bobby and Chris and all those guys who are doing Anvil, um, Underbelly, um, Haymarch, and all those spots. So from there, we just kind of started a relationship with them as well uh, that gave birth to some of those projects with Chris. Cool. So from Polly's to Greenway to the Underbelly restaurant group mm-hmm. to the Anvil restaurant group, um, that's a whole lot of different kind of types of menus, right? Because we're talking about a casual counter service Italian restaurant with Polly's. We're talking about a, I don't know which wave it is, but a coffee shop, you know, mm-hmm. that... I, are waves, are yeah. we on like the third or the fourth? I'm I'm not sure. I think that was I think that was third at the time. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Don't quote me. Um, but but definitely a more kind of creative, forward thinking kind of coffee shop. I remember yeah. talking to David once and him saying one of the biggest challenges was getting people to not order sizes. Yeah, that it's like the coffee comes in one size. You know, unless it's a drip coffee, like if you're getting a cappuccino or a latte, this is the one size it is. Yeah. Um. So structurally, I'm sure that made for challenges when it came to designing um, a menu for him. And then you're talking about you know a much more involved restaurant in the form of Underbelly, and you're talking about you know you know a craft cocktail bar like Anvil, very innovative program um, that really pushes the boundaries for what a cocktail bar is. So all of those are totally different things. How did you, what was kind of the unifying vision for you when it came to approaching each of those things? And then what were you willing to like wiggle on based on each of those concepts? So I think that each each of those clients in their own way were trying to dismantle um trends inside of the restaurant industry in their own ways um, by bringing about these more craft-driven movements, uh, whether that's limiting coffee cup sizes or, you know, honing down the, the cocktail aspect of what you're doing and really making sure that you're proud of those elements that you're representing inside of your menu. So I think the, the consistent thread through all of those guys is that they were trying to change what had become... Um, the the norm inside of the restaurant industry and i think by the norm it's it's kind of like it had reached a point where like chilies and you know not there's anything wrong with those places but that was that was what everyone was used to um so this was kind of dismantling those trends and inside of that like developing menus for each of those guys was kind of a case-per-case basis of what they wanted to communicate inside of that change uh, and being kind of a conduit for how to represent that in a printed menu. Um, that's honestly, like, that's how, how we kind of take each client as they come. It's what are they trying to communicate? How did they want uh, to pursue displaying this menu? Um, 
you know, what are the themes and elements that they really feel strongly about that they want to be represented well inside of that. And you're, you're dealing with people that are very specialized. You're dealing with, you know, chefs or, you know, bartenders. Um, you're dealing with people that have a very clear vision for perhaps a portion of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe they don't have the vocabulary to explain what they're hoping to get out of, you know, maybe the visual aspect of the menu or mm-hmm. what they want the logo to be. They can't necessarily put it into words. How do you kind of create a dialogue with them and kind of translate their vision for the food or their vision for the overall concept into an easily understandable logo or into a menu? Yeah, so that comes from, obviously, firstly, a consultation of just like fully understanding what they're trying to accomplish with their concept. Um, From there, it actually moves into us starting to create logo options um and that kind of means developing four to five different logo directions that we feel resonate with with what we've communicated um but obviously we don't know for sure which one of those will land in their purview uh from there it can either have a great deal of success from that presentation and we find a winner straight off the bat or it can lead into a dialogue that lasts for two, three months of just honing mm. down what it is exactly that they're trying to accomplish with that logo. Um, for us, that's the, the foundation of everything that we produce for them in the future is that logo, those typefaces, um, colors, everything that we represent in that first round. So, And in that consultation phase, how important is it for you to maybe in the case of a restaurant, you know, when it comes to chatting with the chef, do you need to taste their food? Do you need to spend some time in the kitchen with them? Or is a verbal conversation enough? With bartenders, is it enough to just see the layout for the business? Is it enough to chat with them? Or what what are some of the key things that help you make that decision? Yeah, so I would say like 80% of the time, it is conversational. It's all conversational. Um, I think a lot of what chefs produce and bartenders produce, it's obviously important to experience those things, but it's more important to understand where they're coming from with the production of those things. So what's the underlying hopes, dreams, like what are they trying to do in their industry? What are they trying to say with these things? Uh, So for us, it's all majority of the time conversational. Uh, We need to understand what they hope to achieve with their concept. So we kind of move from there. And obviously, we love uh, behind the scenes and getting getting to taste things and getting to build those relationships as well. But it's, it's definitely a secondary um, component to our brand building. Can you think back to the design of a particular logo or the creation of a particular menu, some sort of like genesis for one of these particular designs? I mean, I don't know if this is, this might be a tad off off topic on that, but um, I, I do remember for one thing. There are no rules. There, There's, there's no, no set rules. topics here. This is Thunderdome. This is. <laughs> well, then I'm going to, I'm going to proceed into the Thunderdome. Uh, this was um, one fifth when they started that concept mm-hmm. with us. They just had a meeting with us and uh, 
just kind of told us they were starting a dinner series is what they called it <laughs> and they told us there was going to be like five five mini events you know there's things that they were gonna shift for each event and then uh, it wasn't until after getting done with the creation of that logo that they told us that it was actually going to be a restaurant that was going to last for five years. And oh, so at the time, year. so at the time, you were under the impression that this was just like a dinner series that might be had at one of their previous restaurants. Correct, correct. Or like pop up, not a brick yeah, and mortar. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. No, it, it threw us. It was a, a good joke. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, yeah. Uh, I remember when they announced that. Um, we should say for listeners that aren't familiar, One Fifth is a restaurant in Montrose on Westheimer um, in the former Mark Space, um, a restaurant that had been around for, you know, generations, a yeah. kind of institution within the city. And prior to being that restaurant, Mark's was a church um, and still retains very much the architecture of a church. Definitely. Um, and when Mark's closed, um, Chris Shepard came in, announced he was closing his kind of the the crown jewel of the Montrose neighborhood uh, restaurant mm-hmm. scene. He was closing Underbelly and would be opening up a restaurant that would change concepts every year. Um, yeah. That was that was crazy when he announced it. I remember everyone was going batshit crazy. So oh yeah, no, it's it's definitely a game changer, uh, especially you know. In, in combination with closing down Underbelly, which, like you said, was definitely, like, a stable uh, in kind of how the, the restaurant industry accumulated there in Montreal. Yeah. So it was an interesting time, for sure. Uh, so so for people that haven't seen that logo um, that you created for One Fifth, mm-hmm. it's a flower. It's a particular type of flower, right? Uh, yes. I. You know what? I honestly can't remember the name of the flower at the moment. <laughs> As you get better with the gardening, (laughs) yeah, as you get better with the gardening, you'll learn more flower names. It won't just be jalapenos and potatoes. You'll (laughs) have. That's all I can recall. It was a potato. (laughs) There you go. Uh, Yeah. A potato blossom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Probably not. um, But each petal of the five petals uh, gets filled in, right, with the release of a new design. Yeah. Correct. And that uh, petal color then correlates to the thematic colors within that year's concept so okay i yeah. i don't know if i had realized that the color yeah. itself relates to the theme it does for sure okay um but yeah it's changed not only in the color that's implemented in that leaf but we usually uh pair that with a a pattern that resonates with the thematic elements of the region that they're cooking from um hmm. And that gets implemented then into website and printed materials, menus, touch points, um, coasters, MacBooks, stuff like that. So you use the term touch points. That's kind of the um, umbrella term for all of that miscellaneous, the the small things, the small details like coasters, matchbooks, things yeah, like that. Yeah, that's what we typically call um, just different things like that that um, guests touch or are play a part in kind of experience as they're moving through uh, the restaurant space. So really, that's as varied, as limited, or complex as the client wants to get. Like, hmm. we we literally will pursue just about anything <laughs> in the hopes of creating a unique uh, experience for our guests. So. Yeah, it's funny. You know, you go out and you dine at a restaurant, and there might be these big aspects that the restaurant 
hopes you take away from the experience, but I've always found on my end that it's while I'm sitting there dining, there's a small little detail, a tiny thing mm-hmm. that that just totally stands out and wows you in that moment. Um, yeah. no. I'm thinking of like at all of uh, Justin Yu's restaurants, the little cabinet for silverware mm-hmm. from like at BLT and Squabble and... Um, Oxheart now uh, Theodore Rex, but that little compartment where you can store silverware. Yeah, um, no, it's little I, things like that. Yeah, I think it's those creative touches that really create an impactful uh, moment for a, a guest. Like it's rarely the most obvious thing that you'll think of. Like nine times out of ten, it's the smallest way that you speak to a guest and their experience inside of your restaurant that really resonates with them. Because it's those small, I think, the small details that really communicate a level of care inside of that hospitality uh, that you're presenting. So, so like when you're dining out, what do you look for either when you're looking at a menu or looking at the build-out or looking at those touch points? Where does your eye go? I mean, firstly, it always goes to printed like printed goods. What are they doing inside of the space? Uh, is it coasters? Is it to-go bags? For me, that's a level of tactility that resonates with my background. So mm-hmm. it's always those things that I kind of seek out of like, oh, this feels really good. This looks really good. Oh, this is offset print instead of digital. Like it's those kind of nerdy points. So it's definitely a different, I would think, than most guests uh, as far as what they're looking for experientially. If you were to break down menu design for those of us that, you know, don't design menus, um, I know that a lot of it is customized to the individual client, um, but are there certain just kind of general like rules that you follow when it comes to designing a menu, um, either in terms of the paper that you use or how you go about printing it or laying out each of the items? Yeah, so it definitely is case per case. Uh, Some people don't want to have to reprint every three days. Some people do want to reprint every three days. Um, If it's something that's being printed in-house, we have a specific set of guidelines that we usually go by. If it's something that's being printed out of house, we have a specific set of guidelines that we usually go by. It really is case by case. Uh, Informationally, I think for us, hierarchy of type is a huge point that we try to stress inside of menu design as far as uh, being different um, sizes of type and fonts in use for describing and pointing out different elements inside of the menu. I think that's our one like hard and fast per every menu. We try to kind of stick to those guidelines. As far as informationally, it's more driven by how each sommelier or beverage director or chef wants to present their content because uh, we usually take cues from them on that stuff because obviously they know the most about what they're producing. Totally. And, you know, you've worked with so many different menus over the years. Is there a particular way in which, you know, information is shown, um, especially when it comes to something as complex as a beverage? Wine, for instance, you know, some guests might come in and not know which one's the grape and which one's the region. Mm -hmm. Is there anyone that you think is doing a really good job or, you know, a design that you're particularly proud of that you've helped with that you think was especially clear? I think that um, both One Fifth and Camerata have both done 
a really good job of presenting those regions and specificities in a way that communicates well to guests. I think it's always paired, though, with service. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we do is producing a printed guideline for customers to engage with directly. But I think even the most educated um, guest might still need a hand from a server to help guide their way through that experience. Uh, so we always kind of use it as as a two-factor authentication. Yeah. Like both both parties have to be uh, aware and present, I think. But. Well, you know, it's funny because we're at a time when technology is playing more and more of a role um, in every business, right? I mean, you see people going paperless. Mm-hmm. There are certainly some restaurants that have tried incorporating an iPad menu. Um, mm-hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> As you, I know you said that for you, kind of that printed material is the first thing you look for when you're in a restaurant. How has Letterset adapted to restaurants moving to kind of an embrace of technology? How, how have you guys kind of like adapted to that? Yeah. So I think that uh, the tac- tactile nature that I'm drawn to um, is driven still by how good uh, that presentation Mm -hmm. looks in the tactile, if that makes sense. So I think at the heart of that is still layout design, like how things are set up and put together, colors and use, uh, symmetry, balance, golden ratio, all those Mm -hmm. beautiful things that that I'm drawn to can still exist in a digital world. I think it it removes, there's one... uh, step of like human interaction that is removed in that digital realm but i think that that can still be re-interjected into if if you are doing more just strictly to go measures or pick up measures uh there's still some elements that you know having a a really nice to go bag can uh resonate with your experience and who you are i think um having really nice you could do um printed napkins or uh, thank you notes or just individualized things that still resonate with guests and still show that you care even in a more digitally removed uh, way. Yeah, no, for sure. You know, it's funny you mentioned the golden ratio. Mm-hmm. I, I'm familiar with it in like an abstract sense, but is it really something that you're incorporating into design? Yeah, um, I would say nine times out of ten, either consciously or subconsciously, it dictates a lot of how especially with i would say with logos for sure of how those logos are laid out um Hmm. rhythmically how they work even i mean to go bags if you look at ub preserves to go bag like you could literally spot probably 10 different ways that uh golden ratio could be laid over that really still work yeah oh that's so cool (laughs) yeah Um, that's rad so yeah it's definitely it's always an underlying thought and it's just kind of I think comes more probably from my interaction with fine art than design necessarily, but, um, that's rad. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And when you're working with a restaurant group, um, that is hoping to open a new location, mm-hmm. how do you go about creating a unique logo or a unique aesthetic for that location while still retaining some level of familiarity with maybe the parent company or the previous brand yeah uh so that's kind of something that's 
abstracted more recently. I feel like uh, traditionally restaurant branding was like you were either trying to become a chain that everyone could recognize instantly at the drop of a hat with golden arches or, you know, a red chili pepper yeah. uh, to now it's a, a red jalapeno. A red jalapeno. <laughs> Back to the jalapenos. Uh, but yeah. yeah, but now it's, it's kind of transmuted into this um, more individualized experience and yes, you may have a restaurant group that's producing multiple concepts, but each concept is a very different experience inside of that hospitality group. So really working inside of those smaller groups, it's more um, subtle nods that will slip into their branding. Like there's a font that stays consistent or a, a single color that kind of gets used across their brand or illustrative elements that kind of land in the same voice throughout those concepts. It's really a fine line because uh, each concept is trying to produce a unique experience, but they still want it to be mm -hmm. related in some small way to what they're building as a group. Um, that said, it leaves a lot more room for creativity and kind of playfulness, and uh, there's a lot of just really interesting things you can do with it. But it's definitely not as, as hard and fast, I feel, as it used to be. Hmm. I'm curious, you know, after designing menus and designing, you know, wineless specifically, like what have you learned about either cocktails or what have you learned about wine from your experience designing wineless? That is a great question. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, uh, ashamedly... <laughs> not a, a huge amount <laughs> oh man yeah i know i know uh i think in in the the depth of just like day-to-day -day of what we're doing when we approach those menus it is so driven by the elements that we're trying to produce of just like symmetry and hierarchy of type and all of those things that we're looking at like we don't disseminate uh the information of those cocktails in the same way that maybe you do as a beverage director or sommelier. Uh, so when we're looking at those menus, we might not be retaining all of the uh, super nerdy, <laughs> great aspects of, of what the beverage director is really doing there. Yeah. Uh, we're more concerned with making sure that those things read really well, are super consistent line by line. Um, that said, I love participating <laughs> i love sitting at the places that we go and drinking the things that we drink and yeah. having trusted people such as yourself uh guide oh, us through man. those experiences <laughs> that's um, funny but yeah that's that's definitely more where we're coming from unfortunately that's no, all good i mean i i think you know spending time in those businesses and seeing the way it's like you said earlier it's kind of like that two-part authentication you know Mm -hmm. A menu is only as good, um, at, or a wine program in general, um, is only as good as the staff that serves it. Um, sure. I remember one of my higher ups when I worked at Houston's or the Hillstone restaurant group, you know, this big organization. And I had made like some infrastructural changes to the menu. I was really proud of the new additions, like the new wines that we had brought on. I had just um, gotten my sommelier certification and one of the regionals for the company said, never forget your wine program is only as good as your least knowledgeable staff member. 
because Ooh. like yeah. the day you're not in the building you know some guest is going to point to a wine on that list and if the staff member that's interfacing like can't explain it or doesn't recognize the wine on the menu then you're kind of like yeah in the shit no, that's so super, yeah. super valid no so and yes good way to put it in yep. the shit yeah <laughs> yep. so I'm curious, like, you know, you had that amazing formative experience going to U of H and learning, you know, more maybe classical art. Um, We talked about kind of contextualizing things a little bit. Um, Nowadays, when you're seeking inspiration, either for your personal projects or for things to bring to a client, where do you go to seek that kind of like inspiration? So I think for me personally, a lot of times like it, it lives in the past of seeing what people have done. Um, I think that's the best way to even forecast trends is to have a really in-depth understanding of like where we come from, why trends exist, uh, how people interact with trends, how to forecast those trends. Like that's a lot of what we're doing. I mean, personally, when I'm looking for inspiration, like it can be, I'm an avid thrifter. So like, Goodwill, just like finding weird ass, random, old printed things that spike interest or, um, I mean. Is there a particular like time period in advertising, maybe American advertising, maybe advertising elsewhere in the world, but is there an era? I don't know if it's like the 1960s or 50s or 1920s. Is there a period that resonates with you? I'd say there's, there's a couple. So like, uh. 20s to the 30s like any kind of art deco art nouveau influences like they were doing some extremely complicated interesting things with illustration and advertising uh that resonates with me a lot i really draw a lot of inspiration from there and then i think in the um the 50s and 60s combined there was an interesting um kind of implementation of how graphics were used and illustration was used inside of marketing and advertising uh, that really resonates with me. And I think even what we're doing now, um, what the industry is doing now is very similar in some ways to to those voices. Hmm. Um, you know, you mentioned kind of being able to forecast where things are going. So we'll just go ahead and address the elephant in the room, which is, you know, (laughs) the COVID-19 crisis that's going on. Um, but that's a huge disruptor, especially in the food and beverage industry, right? We've got, we've got hundreds of restaurants, thousands of restaurants in our city alone of Houston that have radically had to alter the way in which they do business, or they've had to shutter entirely. Um, I know that you've already helped a couple of those restaurants kind of implement maybe new menus for their to-go programs. Um, Mm -hmm. but in terms of long-term changes to the way in which not just restaurants operate, but the way in which we associate aesthetics with restaurants, how do you see COVID-19 altering kind of that landscape? I think a a lot of it we've already been addressing um, as business owners, uh, and that is through like social media and a strong web presence. I think those are going to become the touchstones of like how people interact with you, how they relate to your brand. So I think it it in some ways will be creating a more consistent dialogue with 
social media users um, and how they're kind of interacting with your brand so that those things stay consistent on that front. I think in some ways it, it really will be redefining like how pickup and to-go orders operate, um, how you continue to engage people with that information, keep mm -hmm. them excited with what you're producing. I think in some ways it might produce a more frequent update schematic of like how, how things are continually updated and turned over just to continue peak interest. Because mm -hmm. I feel like that's one of the sad kind of downfalls of social media is that it is so constantly refreshing yeah. um, that it will be kind of re-engaging those same people, but on these different notes that kind of have to continually turn over. Um, other than that, I think, you know, we're creatures of habit. I think once this kind of dies down, it, it'll obviously be a thought in all of our heads and we'll be a little bit more prepared for it. But I think that consumers love to interact with people and with bartenders and sommeliers. And I think that will spring back pretty quickly, um, after this has kind of subsided totally um you know i gotta ask there are certain fonts <laughs> that seem to get uh, a lot of attention uh perhaps negative attention uh i'm thinking of like comic sans i'm thinking <laughs> of papyrus uh -huh. um are there are there pet peeves for you within kind of the world of design are or are those fonts redeemable are there other things out there that you know you've seen just overused or i think that you know that even overrated relates back to uh kind of what we we're talking about forecasting trends so i think those things exist in every industry uh, yeah. those things that start to be over relied on uh so much so that it creates like a cultural backlash <laughs> just because you've yeah. seen it too much and now you hate it because you've seen mm -hmm. it too much so firstly, that doesn't invalidate uh, the creation of those initial constructs. Are you here to defend Comic Sans? <laughs> or is that what you're here to I'm do? I'm not here to defend Comic Sans. Is that your agenda <laughs> that my, for this episode? That is my agenda. No. Uh, I think there's... So uh, think about any, any fine artist, uh, any Somalia, anything that you create with the best of intentions, you've created it. And it's there. <laughs> and then suddenly this entire society comes behind it. And it's like, oh, we hate this. Well, how does that kind of make you feel mm -hmm. as, a, as an individual designer? <laughs> it must be yeah. terrible. I feel sorry for the Comic Sans guy. <laughs> oh, I know. But yeah, I would say that's, that's where it comes from. It's like, sure, they're not, <laughs> they're not the best. Uh, when you think about the touchstones of what makes typography good, uh, <laughs> Yeah. They're not keystones to communicating that well. You're being incredibly diplomatic yeah. <laughs> right now. I'm trying to. Uh, but yeah, that said, there's still someone that exists behind those that created them for better or for worse. <laughs> so. are, are, are there things that you see in the market that you think, you know, two years from now will look back and say... Oh man, I can't believe everyone was doing that. You know, is there? Oh, is there? Yeah, I think it's it's literally everything that we're doing right now. 
<laughs> literally everything. I hate to say oh, it, man. but that's the way that trends work. Is like we'll yeah. we'll reach a certain point in the next few years where we look back at the things that we were doing and we see potential for doing them better, and that potential overrides mm-hmm. what we've done uh, for better or for no, worse. For that's, sure, that's the yeah. cycle that creates. <laughs> Well, um, what what have you been uh, drinking during your time of quarantine? Uh, I I have uh, <laughs> been drinking uh, Lone Star. <laughs> Lone old, Star, the old kitchen water. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, it's hard to beat, especially on those hot days. But it, it's been warm here in Houston. It's we've been broken warm. ninety a couple of times. I know, which is super weird. But that's that's kind of my go-to on the beer front. Super easy to drink. Super approachable. <laughs> Um, How would you break down their logo, the Lone Star logo? Like you looking at that. Yeah, it's it's iconic. Like, but some of that is just like the history that's created that iconicism. Is it's yeah. been around for so long that no matter what iteration, it still kind of feels relevant, which yeah. is nice. It's refreshing. But um, we've also been drinking uh, a lot of whiskey. I think whiskey is a big go-to. Uh, mm-hmm. Currently, doing you've always that. been really big into whiskey. That's really always enjoy, been yeah whiskey. Yeah. I like scotch too. A lot of peated, um, heavier drinkers. We're doing a uh, an Ardbeg Supernova right now, which is hmm. super nice. Drink it through that. But other than that, keeping it simple. Yeah. When you're in the process of creating, when you're brainstorming designs or or just freely sketching, do you find that? A small consumption of alcohol like helps lubricate that creativity. Yeah, so I will actually, as a former barista, I'll break it down as coffee consumption and then alcohol consumption. Yeah, <laughs> I feel okay. like in the morning I need I need the uh, the caffeine stimulation yeah. <laughs> to kick off the juices, and then usually it reaches a point around like three, four, five o'clock where I'm like, okay, you know, my process could benefit from a, you know, small pour of whiskey or hmm. uh, maybe a beer. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely case by case. There are some days when it's literally just like you hone in and you're working and it's fine. I, mm-hmm. I find more like when the going gets tough of like when I feel like there's a block or I just can't create what's in my mm-hmm. head. Like sometimes a little sip of whiskey will kind of help <laughs> lubricate yeah. those gears and get things going. So. Are there other Kickstarters that you use? Other kind of things to catal- catalyze that? Um... Oh yeah, for sure. Um, definitely books is a big one for me. Um, kind of use that quite a bit as far as like understanding and catalyzing ideas. Uh, just We're talking about books like like books that you're reading or like coffee table, like collection books of prior art. Like what is it? A little bit of both, a little bit of both. Um, huge fan of philosophy, even though I don't understand it as completely as I should at some times. Yeah. Um, but that's definitely a Kickstarter on um, a lot of how I interact with the market and mm-hmm. uh, as a consumer and a creator. Um, but then also, yeah, like you mentioned, kind of like coffee table collections of books and, and once again, understanding the past and where things have been and seeing, learning lessons from those avenues, big, big proponent of that. But, um, yeah, plenty, plenty of wells to dip from when creatively drained. (laughs) 
And when it comes to making coffee, what's your preferred method? Do you do you have a Chemex? Do you do pour over French press? Yeah, so we've got uh, AeroPress, a um, Bonavita. Um, it's kind of like a automated mm-hmm. pour over. Mm-hmm. That's our that's our like daily cup that we go to. But then like mid afternoon, if I'm needing uh, pick me up, it'll be an AeroPress or um, we have another. It's like a little um siphon based little percolator that we'll use oh, yeah. occasionally but plenty of means to go. create the coffee that's funny yeah. that's cool uh, how about yourself um, what do you what are your um well it's funny i'm i i do a lot of running running is like for me a great opportunity to kind of simultaneously like close out a lot of like distracting noise um and kind of just focus on what i need in that moment which generally is like very loud rap music and just like like i can focus on that i'll just like blast like lately what i've been listening to is the newest uh lil uzi vert album (laughs) um eternal take which has a pretty amazing cover if you want to check out a cool cover art that one's pretty rad um Um, so running is a big thing for me. Do a lot of that. Um, I think that's the biggest thing, you know, as long as I get like my daily, like dose of endorphins from a huge physical exertion, it it always has to be like the first thing in the morning I wake up and I go for my run. Um, I, I need to run on like an empty stomach. So if I can start my day that way, then the rest of the day tends to go well. If my day doesn't begin with a run, followed by a quick bite, followed by a shower, then I find myself very discombobulated and I find it hard to create any sort of like routine throughout the remainder of the day. Yeah. Um, I find it hard to be creative or hard to stay focused. Yeah, so For sure. It's crazy how, how much that can impact just like your day of forming those habits and kind of fully living yeah. into those of what that can do to like the rhythm of your production. Yeah. Well, um, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Um, yeah, for sure. Thanks. Taking thanks time, for me up. <laughs> time away from your potatoes and jalapenos <laughs> out of out of your uh, vegetable garden. Yeah, to... you know it was it's hard to allocate that extra time. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> well, hope just jokes, just jokes. This has been great. Thank you. <laughs> I, I I hope that we get an opportunity to share a glass of whiskey or crack open some Lone Stars when this all blows over. I think <laughs> that'll sure. be good. I hope for the same. Seriously, this has been great. Again, a big thank you to Matt for taking the time to chat with me last week. Uh, if you want to learn a little bit more about what he does, you can go online to lettersethouston.com or you can find him on Instagram at Matthew underscore America. And you can find us online wherever you get your podcasts or on Instagram at By the Glass Podcast. And if you have any feedback, please don't hesitate to give us a holler. In the meantime, keep drinking good wine and we'll see you next week.